I just feel there has been so much damage done to the credibility of scientists, you know, in particularly in the past four years under a president who did not seem to support science or, you know, even suppressed good information. And also the, the power of social media, where there seems to be very little incentive by the social media platforms to bring out only the truth and to suppress false information. And I can sort of see that we want in the United States in particular, we want freedom of press and freedom of opinion. But I also feel that there should be some way of reporting people who, who make false claims like the vaccines have killed more people than COVID-19 itself. So, well, thank you for coming on the podcast, Elizabeth. Just to get started, I, I wanted to kind of ask you, the New Yorker just published an article about you and in the headline, they described you as biology's image detective. Can you explain what that means? Yeah. So, well, I'm a biologist by training. I'm a microbiologist. And I also apparently have some talents to find or to see duplicated parts of images or duplicated images. So I cannot detect a Photoshop, but I can detect if a photo has elements that are repetitive. So for when we talk about scientific images, that could be an image showing multiple cells, but all the cells look identical. So it appears that those have been cloned by Photoshop. And, and so not by biology cloning, but by somebody taking a cell and stamping that a couple of times in a photo. And so that is my specialty. I look at photos in scientific papers and I will detect duplicated elements or just panels that have been duplicated. How big of a problem is this? Well, that is a big problem because that means that somebody had manipulated the, the results and photos in scientific papers are the data. When you uh, read a scientific paper, it will say, we found such and so, you know, this, did this and that experiment and this was the outcome, see figure one. And so figure one, any figure in a scientific paper usually is data that it's a photo of cells, it's a photo of tissues, it could have course also be a line graph or a table or things like that but yeah figures are the data and so if somebody changed the result in a photo or if somebody used the same photo to represent two different experiments that might be science misconduct that's data fabrication or falsification and that's that's a really big no-no in science you should not be doing that is this a widespread issue no it's not it it when you look at my work you might think it's a widespread issue because <laughs> This is what I do and this is what I find. But I actually did a, a research to, to look at how many times I would find these duplicated images. And so I scanned 20,000 papers that had at least one photographic image. And 4% of those papers had a duplicated image or duplicated parts within an image. So it's about 4%. And the real percentage of fraud might be higher because I'm only looking at photos and so I'm not looking at tables or sequencing data or any other type of data. So the real percentage of fraud might be higher, but it's, I would just estimate between five and 10%. Uh, but I'm only probably detecting the tip of the iceberg. If you are a really good Photoshopper, I wouldn't find that. But yeah, so it's 4% of detectable duplications in biomedical papers. So what's kind of the scientists' motivations here? They're risking their careers, right? And their professional reputations by conducting scientific misconduct. And more importantly, they're maybe putting out false false science. They're putting out bad science. So why are they doing that? Because the repercussions are, are surprisingly small. Like uh, a lot of scientists who do this and who are being caught 
don't get any punishment for that. Like they, at best, some scientists, and this is really only a very small fraction of scientists who have been caught, they might maybe be punished by not receiving grants for a year or something like that. But that's for most scientists who already have a lot of grants going on, probably not a big problem. So a lot of scientists who are being caught doing this are still, yeah, still have an appointment at, at a university. They're not being fired. And that's frustrating because it's cheating. And you would, you would think that the person would be punished for that. But there's very, very little punishment. And in most cases, people are, yeah, still have a, a glorious career and get more and more grants. Right. When did, when did this first come across your radar as something you were interested in and an issue that you saw was significant? I started this work working on plagiarism, actually. So I heard on a podcast or was reading about scientific misconduct, but specifically about plagiarism. And I thought, let's just check a random sentence that I had written in a science paper in, in Google Scholar. So I put it put that sentence between quotes in Google Scholar, expecting only to find my own paper. And I found another paper published in some predatory publishing book or like some, yeah, some, some strange online book that was free for download, but it was actually my text. So they had used my sentence and passed it off as their own in this paper. And it turned out that this paper not only had used my sentence, but the sentences of many other scientists. So it was sort of this this patchwork of many different scientists, uh, different, many different papers that they had put together and, and sort of passed off as a new paper, but it was all plagiarized text. So I, I worked on plagiarism for uh, about a year. And then by another coincidence, I spotted in a PhD thesis, a Western blot. It's a protein blot, it's a photo. And I, it had a very particular smear that I recognized. And then I saw a couple of pages in another chapter or so in, in that same PhD thesis, I spotted the same photo, but it was upside down and it had been used to represent a different experiment. And, but yeah, I recognized it. It had this, this weird little spot or smear. So that was not good. And this paper had been published in a scientific uh, paper as well. And I recognized I had some talent to, to do that. So it was all by coincidence mainly, but it, it, it's one of those moments that sort of make your career or make your career change. Yeah, if, if I hadn't seen that, then I probably would never have worked on this. And while you were doing this, what was your day job? I worked at Stanford. So I was a microbiologist. I worked on the microbiome of marine mammals and humans. So the microbiome is the bacteria that live inside our bodies and or on our bodies on our skin and i was working on on the microbiome of humans but also dolphins and sea lions and that was my day job i was i guess a regular scientist working at stanford and uh, writing papers doing research and i was doing this image duplication searches in the evenings or in the weekend so it was sort of my my hobby I, yeah, I saw, well, I think you're, you're being a little humble here because I saw on Google Scholar <laughs> that you have a paper that has like 20K citations, something crazy like that. Yes. And I, I, I worked in a PhD lab in college. And so I knew a bunch of PhD students you're, and, and PhDs. You're by far the most cited person I know. <laughs> well, I, I, there's, there's plenty of other people who will claim I'm just a very modest scientist by their standards. So there's always people who have published more. I think, you know, for, for at the point of, of my career, that I'm at, I am a probably, yeah, sort of a middle of the pack type of scientist. But yes, there's one paper that we published in Science and I'm the second author on, of that. Uh, and that paper has a lot of, a lot of citations. It was one of the first publications 
analyzing the microbiome of humans using DNA sequencing. So there have been other papers. We were not the first, but it was one of the first large scale papers. And that has been cited a crazy amount of times. I guess it was published in science. And so I was incredibly uh, lucky to have worked on, on that project. And yeah, it's, it, I think the, the paper still stands as we, we, we made sure it was high quality and it's been no, no image duplication. Second. No image duplication. <laughs> well, there's actually no photo in it. So like most scientific papers, there's actually no photo in this. Just just lying graphs and but yeah i i can 100% vouch for it that there's no there's no science misconduct i'm sure there's errors in it like in any paper that in which you analyze you know thousands and thousands of of dna sequences there's it's very hard to not make any errors we all make errors but it's uh, it's done with the best of intentions and uh, it it has stood up to the to the test of time it's still being uh, cited a lot so Elizabeth, in, in doing some research for this pod or this particular subject, I realized that there are a number of ways to publish fraudulent data in science. The one that you specialize in, which is image doctoring, it, I, I guess it's somewhat prolific, like what you had just described. But then there are other ways, like people will run experiments nine out of 10 times, the result is null, but then like one out of 10 times, it ends up being exactly what they want. And then they get that published. So what's your sort of take on the full wide variety of fraud in science and whether the incentive structures that allow image doctoring to happen are the same incentive structures that allow this to happen? How would you break down sort of the incentives that, that lead to both? both scenarios well so the incentives in science are are to publish so we as scientists are encouraged but also almost forced to publish because it, it's needed for our careers like as a postdoc or a professor you need to or you're expected to publish an x amount of papers per year and unfortunately scientific publishing focuses on positive results so if you have done a long study showing that a particular drug does not help against a particular cancer that's not a very publishable paper because it's sort of a negative result. It shouldn't be, but unfortunately, a lot of journals will say, well, that result is not very novel or, you know, earth shattering. We want to have a positive result. So the incentive to publish po positive results is one of the important yeah, incentives to, to cheat because people want to have a positive result. And like you said, if you have, you know, 10%, only 10% of your experiments gives the result you, you would like, then that's the, the experiment that you'll pick for your paper. So that's called cherry picking. It's basically picking the results that you like to see that fit your own hypothesis, but ignoring the results that do not fit your hypothesis. And, and that would be also called publication bias, or like we're, we're all biased. We all want ex our experiments to work out a certain way. And if it doesn't, do we accept those results or do we keep on trying until we have a positive result? And, and that's still a big step towards science misconduct. I do feel that it's, it's cheating in a way, but it's not, I feel, as bad as really faking or forging results. Like when you have, have you, if you have measured a couple of things and you change the results, you change the values so that they cross a particular threshold and suddenly your negative sample becomes a positive, that is where we're really talking about science misconduct. So there's, there's a whole range of steps in between from publication bias towards p-hacking, which is sort of the cherry picking where you keep on doing statistical tests. And there's one statistical test in which your result suddenly is significant. You pick that uh, towards really changing or fabricating results. That which so fabricating um, and falsification those are considered science misconduct together with plagiarism by the definition of the Office of Research Integrity. Sure. P hacking 
and publication bias are not necessarily included in the, the, the pure definition of science misconduct. But there's a lot of gray in between. There's, there's a, it's hard to draw the line what is misconduct and what is just bias. Right. right. I think in reading the uh, New York article specifically, I was kind of surprised to find that you had found issues in some of the most important and prestigious journals and articles. And when I'm always listening to news or po- other podcasts about science, they're always referring to peer-reviewed articles or uh, these editors at these journals have the highest standard. But obviously not because because you found, you, you've found you discovered some sort of fraud. What are these editors missing? Like, what is what is it? issue within this organization that allows stuff like this to get published? Oh, there could be all kinds of issues that editors are either not paying attention to or just not trained to find problems with papers. So you would hope that an editor would find the obvious photoshops in, in or most obvious errors in papers. But an editor is usually a person who's unpaid, who does editing sort of as a side job. It might be a very busy professor who's been asked to do an edit, be, be an editor of a journal. So basically what they do is they, they get the manuscripts that are usually pre-screened, and then they need to find peer reviewers who are also busy and unpaid and, and have no really no time to really look carefully at a paper. And, and then when they receive the peer reviews, they sort of compile that and, and make a final decision. But very often, I've been an editor myself for a very short amount of time. I found it very hard. It's, you don't really have time to read the paper yourself. You sort of rely on your peer reviewers to do a good job. And sometimes they also do, don't do a good job. So it's, it's really tough because none of these jobs are paid. And unfortunately, we have to pay the publisher a lot of money to get our work, either depending on the model of publishing, to, to get the paper published. So where that money goes into is, is not very clear. Everything is published online. So it's, uh, and, and also editors are not trained to find these problems. I'm looking at it with a lot of experience. I, I've seen a lot of different types of photoshops or photo duplications. And so I'm very trained for these situations because I've seen so many of them. But a lot of people don't really see these problems until you point it out to them. I point, point I do a lot of uh, puzzles on, on Twitter. I will post them under image forensics. And then of course, when I post one of those images, people know there's something wrong and they'll usually find it. But people forget that I've, I've seen hundreds of images maybe before I found this one with a duplication. And so once you know there's an error, you'll find it. But if, if you just quickly look at figures, you might not spot it. And you need to be told that this might be a thing before you start to see it yourself. So if you were a benevolent dictator, what would you change about the system to avoid these issues? It's really hard because fraudsters are going to fraud. And the only thing you can do is... is like ask people to send in raw data that would be sort of an extra hurdle but if a real fraudster wants to fraud they're going to fraud so i i have no illusions that we can make science 100 foolproof and fraud proof there's always going to be people who want to cheat the system because we we put so much emphasis on outputs on science papers as as the output of scientists and it's only when we have replicated a paper that we sort of know it, it was probably true. But you can never 100% be certain that everything in the paper was honest. And um, that's very unfortunately because science in a way is, is about finding the truth. I've always felt like when you are in science, you want to discover a particular pathway or a particular bacterium or you want to discover what is true what is what is the truth about a particular biology 
process. And so I've always felt that science should be about reporting the truth. So for scientists to fraud, I feel that's a huge violation of, of our profession as a whole. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. So I'm, I'm someone who reads a lot of papers. Anytime I'm curious about something, I'll hop on Google Scholar and I'll, I'll see what I can find. But I, I'm, I'm not a PhD. I don't have that much training in this field. And I have a lot of friends who do the same thing as me and, and don't have any experience with this. How do we read papers and say, this is something which we, sh- we should have a high degree of credibility in. This is a really good paper versus this is something that, you know, maybe we shouldn't put too much confidence in. Yeah, it, that's a good question. I don't have a standard answer for you because even papers that have been published in high impact journals by, you know, authors who work at institutions that seem to have some credibility, even those papers have been caught with fraudulent data. So it's not a hundred percent guarantee, but having said that papers that have been published in science or the Lancet, usually with some very big exceptions, usually are more credible than papers in that are, for example, published on a preprint server that have not been peer review. Those are the two extremes. But yeah, there, there, there has been a big paper in, published in The Lancet that had been, uh, was retracted last year because it was based on, probably based on fraudulent data. And so that's one of those big exceptions that makes headlines and that make a lot of people who are not scientists think that all science is flawed. Well, that was really the exception. It's, it's like saying, yeah, Theranos you know, was a company that did not really do well so we cannot trust any biotech company anymore. Right. Like you cannot make those those extrapolation extrapolations based on one bad apple. It's it's usually the those those cases make headlines and for good reasons. And that was a fraudulent paper by at least from all the evidence I've seen. But it was hard to recognize it as a fraudulent paper. I did not recognize it myself either. I actually tweeted about this paper. And my haters, my trolls, who are, you know, my, my loyal enemies on Twitter are still saying, oh, Big tweeted about this paper so she cannot detect any fraud. And, and it was hard just to look at that paper and, and realize it was a fraud. You really had to dive deep into the, the paper, knew a lot about particular numbers that were misreported to find out that that was fraud. So it happens anywhere. Those cases make big headlines, but in the end, it's it's usually you can trust those, those journals, but yeah, it's, uh, there's the exceptions, of course. So, so I, let me, let me play uh, sort of devil's advocate really quickly, or at least from what I've read and what I understand, I'd be totally off. I came across these pre-publication sites, right? Like I, I have it written down here, ARXIV and BioRXIV. Yeah. <laughs> oh, archive, archive, oh, BioArchive, okay. MetArchive. Yeah, you say, right. that's how you pronounce it, archive. <laughs> Okay, little, sorry. This is my. This is literally my first time. That I've, I've, <laughs> it's literally inside out. Yeah. yeah, Bio yeah, archive. Yeah. So now, yeah. okay. So everybody knows where I'm at on this. Preference servers. Yeah. Right. And the argument that I basically read is, well, sometimes it's worthwhile to publish some sort of science output. Just get the output out there, even if it's just an idea, even if it isn't peer reviewed, even if it isn't 100% accurate and has veracity. I just to get that idea out there, you know, into the into the minds of people that might do more research and build on it, even though it's like incredibly low barrier to entry and anybody can get it out there. Is that generally a good thing for science, do you think? I believe so. And especially in the case where we were last year at the beginning of an ep- epidemic where quite frankly, we're all in a state of panic where there was, you know, a lot of mortality, a lot of people dying, a lot of people getting sick, a new virus, nobody really knew what, you know, the the new enemy was. In in a situation like that, we need science to be fast and we need to have a very quick model of scientific publishing. So if a person 
has found a result that is worth sharing that might save lives, you, there's a big argument to make to publish this quickly, even though it might mean publishing before peer review, but just getting it out there so that a lot of people can read it and, and, and benefit from these results. But there's a delicate balance between wanting to publish fast and doing good science. So those things are, yeah, they're, they're, they're two ends of the spectrum. It's, it's two parts that are usually not in agreement with each other because science, if it's done well, it's very slow. It's just painfully slow. It's like looking for tiny details, having long arguments with other scientists about yeah, how to interpret particular results. Yeah, that just is not, cannot be done in a very fast way. And so it, it's, it's finding this balance between publishing results really fast, but knowing it's on a preprint server, it's not being peer-reviewed. It's just a view of one particular lab, and that can be very biased because no other people have had a chance yet to carefully digest it and give feedback and go through these normal and slow processes. So it's, it's I'm all for preprint servers, but it, it comes with a lot of caveats. You need to interpret it as just the views of one lab not being peer-reviewed and, and take it with a grain of salt. So one high-profile instance that I think most people are familiar with of, of a paper being just rushed out before it was ready was the was Trump's favorite hydro hydrochloric sorry how do you say that hydroxychloroquine hydroxychloroquine yes hydroxychloroquine uh, study that just like got got shuttled out and I believe you were one of the early scientists to say this is this is bad research right so can you That's can right. you kind of talk about the situation sure so this was a paper by the group of Professor Raoul in Marseille in France and he claimed that hydroxychloroquine was um, a really good medication to get rid of the virus. So he looked at patients who had the virus who were positive for the PCR, and he looked at clearance of the virus, repeatedly testing these patients and seeing when they would become negative. And he showed in his paper, which was only, I believe, 40 patients. So it's a very small study. And he had three different treatment groups. So some people were not treated. Some people only got hydroxychloroquine. And the third group got hydroxychloroquine plus azithromycin, which is an antibiotic. And he showed that um, the, the both groups that had the hydroxychloroquine treatment, that those people cleared the virus, so got PCR negative faster than the people who do, did not receive any of those drugs. But the, the groups were really small. So if you have 40 patients and you divide them over three groups, you can already see that the numbers get pretty small. But there were a lot of flaws with this study. So one of the things was that there were six patients who were in the hydroxychloroquine groups in either one of these groups who did most of these patients were, did not really do very well on the hydroxychloroquine and they were left out of the study. So they started with a particular patient group that, but six patients were left out. So one of them died three, I think two of them got really bad, got really sick. So they were transferred to the intensive care. One patient got a lot of side effects or, or two patients and a one patient just walked out of the study. So it wasn't pretty clear. So it looked like the researchers might have decided to do this cherry picking that we talked about previously, where, you know, the results weren't really quite what they had hoped. You know, if, if one patient dies on your drug, you should not leave them out of the study, right? Like that's, right, that's, of that's, course. This is not good <laughs> science. It's just so basic. Like, no, yeah. you cannot just say, I did not want this result. I'm just going to leave it out. And that was actually, they had noted that they had written it in the paper. So who else, you know, might they have left, left out? 
that was just one. There were many other problems with this paper. So I wrote a long review about it. There was problems with ethical, re ethical the dates of approval versus start of the study that there was some problems there. He included some children, even though he wrote that he didn't include children, but he did. And then there were differences between the treatment group. So those people were all treated at a different hospital than most people who were not treated. And so there were all these differences between the different treatment groups that you would not expect in a good, rid, uh, rigorously set up scientific study. You, would, you should randomize your patients. And he didn't do that. He appeared to have handpicked patients and, and maybe those patients who were on hydroxychloroquine were already less sick to start with or maybe farther in their, in their disease status, so they would have cleared the virus even faster. So all kinds of problems. And I, I wrote a, a critical blog post about that. And that got me into trouble. <laughs> Can you elaborate on that? Yeah. So obviously, Professor Raoul did not enjoy my critique. And, and I can understand that. I, I understand that he was not happy with my critique. And I, so I raised the concerns, not only by writing about this on a blog post, but I also posted on a website called PubPeer, which is a website where you can leave comments on scientific papers. And he did not answer to my comments there. Instead, he started calling me all these names. So he called me a witch hunter, une single, which means like a crazy woman. He called me a girl who hunts me down and, and you know, all, all kinds of not very nice words, but yeah. So, and, and he also, some of his people who works for him, who are working for him in the same institution started to harass me on Twitter. And so there was one, one of these uh, professors, Eric Chabier, started to ask me all these questions on Twitter which mainly boiled down to who are who is paying you? Are you being paid by Big Pharma to bring down my professor, Professor Raoul? And in the meantime, I started to look at more papers by Raoul and found more problems. So there were some actually some Im some image problems, so some image duplication problems, but also other problems with ethical approval of some of his studies. So it appeared that there's not just this hydroxychloroquine paper that had some flaws but also a bunch of other papers. So I posted all of these on papier and other people started chiming in, finding more and more problems. So by now, I think this uh, professor has 270 papers from his group that are have been flagged on papier and he's becoming a bit annoyed with all of us. And uh, yeah, he has now threatened me with a lawsuit. So he has filed a complaint against me with the prosecutor in Marseille, claiming that I harassed him and that I extorted him and blackmailed him. And that's all based on two answers I gave them on Twitter where they asked me, who's paying you? And I said, oh, you can, you can donate money on my Patreon account. And another one I said, well, I can, I'm a consultant. And so I could check papers if you, want, if you want me to check some papers. Happy to do so as long as you pay me. So he claims that's blackmailing. I cannot imagine that's blackmailing, but yeah, it's uh, he filed a police report with the prosecutor in Marseille and this case is under investigation. And I I hope this will not lead to a lawsuit because I don't think I did anything wrong, but I'm not quite sure how the legal system in France works. So right. so for now it seems to be a threat to try to silence me, but I've already said on Twitter a couple of times, I'm not going to be silenced. I'm, I'll keep on I stand behind all my questions. You can answer them on papier. And I don't think that a scientist should be resorting to legal steps to silence your, your uh, criticasters. But uh, yeah, I guess that's... No, uh, a couple of other authors 
in some cases have, but Raoul himself and Chabier have not answered any of the questions. I saw a petition. I think it was like a thousand scientists who came out to support you because why? Like, I mean, how could you not? This is, I don't know. <laughs> this, this is just so outrageous. It's unbelievable that like, not only is this guy putting out garbage science that has affected us, that has affected the United States because the president used that as, right. as, as policy, but he's also going after whistleblowers who are trying to keep science clean. This is so outrageous. It is. Yeah. And, and unfortunately that's, I'm not the only person who has been harassed or threatened on Twitter or even in real life. I have not been threatened in real life, but there are a couple of scientists who are just trying to bring out good news or, well, let's say honest news and and try to go against people who spread misinformation. There's so much misinformation right now on social media where, for example, there's there's these tweets where people claim that more people have died of the COVID vaccine than of COVID itself. And as a scientist, you cannot be silenced. You cannot look at these numbers right. and, and just look the other way because it's completely not true. And so a lot of scientists will say, that's not true. Look at here, here are the numbers. But then there's all these people who are not scientists usually who claim they know better and they have found another website that disagrees with all these hundreds of scientists. And so you get all these very polarized situations where scientists try to bring out honest information and, and based on facts and other people say that's that the facts are yeah all these these things these wars going on on twitter and sometimes scientists have been threatened um, and uh, there's actually one scientist in belgium who is now living under police protection in a secret location because uh, he's being threatened and it was this soldier who is, has escaped from the army or something with a, with a lot of weapons and who's trying to kill this scientist. And it's just a very strange situation to see that. Wow. Yeah, I know. There's just this like rising tide of scientific misinformation. I can think of one big reason why, but of course, social media has also, I think, contributed to this. Now just anyone can publish without any sort of I don't know. I don't know. Peer review is not the right term for when people who are not scientists say stuff. It's like an idea of sharing an article without reading it first, something like that. Elizabeth, I think on, on this topic, and this is something I've been thinking about a lot, is that it, it just feels like in the since the pandemic, I guess it's not exactly over, but since it, we're coming to an end to it, it seems like the public really doesn't trust the scientific community or it's at an all time low. What do you think can be done to improve that trust, whether it's in the United States or around the world? Oh, that's a, a great question. I, I, I don't really know the answer because I, I just feel there has been so much damage done to the credibility of scientists, you know, in particularly in the past four years under a president who did not seem to support science or, you know, even suppressed good information. And also the, the power of social media, where there seems to be very little incentive by the social media platforms to bring out only the truth and to suppress false information. And I can sort of see that we want in the United States in particular, we want freedom of press and freedom of opinion. But I also feel that there should be some way of reporting people who, who make false claims like the vaccines have killed more people than, than COVID-19 itself. And, but yeah, then other people say, well, if you suppress that opinion, then that's uh, oppressing freedom of speech and I, I yeah I, I think that's a very hard to solve issue and I, I sort of want this country to be about freedom of speech but when that 
turns into misinformation that could actually cost life, I do feel there needs to be drawn a line somewhere. And as scientists, we are all very frustrated that there's no way to report on Twitter false information. There's actually no button. There's no way to report people who send me emails saying you, you belong in jail or you are a fraud. Like I cannot report that. I've reported several of these tweets and I always get to hear from Twitter. We don't feel that violates our rules. Like you can actually say a lot of things to each other before, before tweets are being taken down. And I, yeah, it's, it's this delicate balance between freedom of speech and still trying to be polite to each other. And I'm not sure how to solve this. This, this is a very important question with, with a lot of aspects to it. And I, yeah, just don't sure. have the answer. Do you, do you think all scientists, whether it's physics, math, biology, geology, whatever, have a problem with false data? Or is it just a bigger issue within certain subsets? Yeah, so I feel fraud in science is probably anywhere in any particular field of, of science. I focus on images, which are a part of molecular biology type of papers, because they have a lot of protein blots or DNA blots. And so those are generally photos. But there's also a lot of other types of data, like optical spectra, where I found fraud in. I haven't really looked into a lot of other fields, but I, I do feel there's probably fraud everywhere. But I don't know enough, for example, to, to look at the math paper or a geology paper to find potential problem in it, because that's not really my, my background. I, I, I look at these papers and I just see numbers or graphs and I just don't understand what they mean. So I cannot detect problems in them. But I'm pretty sure that fraud is everywhere. But I also think it, it is important to, it, it's, it's easy to listen to my story and the story of misinformation and scientists. And, and I want to make sure that we confuse these two things because there's fraud in science and that's what I work on. But I also want to make sure that there's, that most science is to be, to be trusted. And I, I feel it's very easy to hear my story and interpret like, oh, all science is, is flawed and we cannot trust that. And at the same time, I'm telling, no, we should trust science. And I, I feel that's a very important thing to, to distinguish between these two things. So I, I will say that there is fraud in science. It's probably everywhere. There's fraud everywhere. There's fraud in banking, in construction, you know, what is there? There's probably no field that you can think of that has no fraud. So science is not right. immune to that right. either. But as a whole, science is about finding the truth. And, and it's the only solution we have, I feel, to solve the big problems that we're currently facing right. in the world, like epidemics and climate uh, change and, and things like that. And I think by now, most people will be convinced that, for example, the earth is not flat. And I feel that a lot of these misinformations in science are based on, you know, the earth is flat data. Like there's, there's no real data to believe that that's the case, but people, if they want to believe that, they'll, they'll believe in that. Right. right. The reason we have, the reason we live longer than 40 years and we have cell phones and the internet is because of science. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I, I, yeah, I, I'm, I'm like, at this point, I'm like, we need more Elizabeths in the science community. But <laughs> People like me, I'm not, I'm, I'm really not the only person, but right. uh, most of these right. people work anonymously and for good reasons, as you can mm -hmm. see, because I'm being haunted down by the French, you know, disinformation trolls so most people will choose to to do this work anonymously but i'm definitely not the only person doing this type of work do you think that in the near future we'll be able to train an algorithm to spot the doctored image if given like ten thousand images basically give your mm -hmm. eye your particular unique talent 
to an algorithm? Is that a possibility? Yes, and I actually, I'm, I'm going to take a, a, a sip of water because I turned this into a drinking game because I get this question so many times on Twitter. So I'm, I'm just going to take a, a sip of water here. Mm, delicious. So <laughs> a lot of people will say, oh, I can, I can write a tool on a Friday afternoon that can do what you can do. It's much harder than you, than you might think because a lot of these duplications are not pixel to pixel identities. So science images have usually been compressed a lot. They're inserted in a PDF. There's all kinds of image compression and data I don't know, processing that have made one image look like another, but not image, not pixel to pixel. So you cannot really do your standard pixel to pixel comparison and find these things. A lot of them, a lot of the times the image is also rotated or zoomed in or zoomed out or like mirrored. So it's, it's a little bit more complex than that. And I've actually participated in a DARPA challenge where I came with my data set of flawed images and, and good images and nobody could crack the code. There were several groups there that, that all claimed we, that they could write on a Friday afternoon, they could write this program to detect it. And we're now three years later and now they're starting to develop tools that can actually do this. So it's, it's pretty hard. But on the other hand, yes, this is information, this technology will be there and it's, it's actually getting ready. There's a couple of tools I'm already starting to use that are starting to find duplications, but, and in some cases they're better than what I can find. They're definitely faster, but there's also duplications that I just see with my, just my eyes and the, the software just cannot see it. I'm like, come on, this is there. It's so clear. Yeah. So it's, we're still, we still have a long way to go. And it always needs human interpretation. So software can easily maybe in the end pick up a duplicated image. But in some cases, there are duplications that are expected and, and actually quite normal, where, for example, you do a control experiment and you compare to, to a particular drug treatment, but then later you have the same photo of the control experiment you compare to another experiment. So in those cases, you might see the same photo, but it's a total... A totally normal and acceptable way of, of reusing the photo. So the software might still detect it as a duplicate, but then you need a human to interpret, yeah, well, this is actually the same experiment, so that's fine. The advantage of software will be in the end that any image in a manuscript that is sent into a, a journal could be scanned against the database of all images that have ever been published, which is, you know, computation is still challenging, but something that I expect to be solvable so that people who want to reuse an image from another group or from an older paper will be caught. And, and that is something I could never do. I can only compare a couple of images to each other, but my, I cannot remember enough of them to remember an image I've seen three years ago. I would not remember that image. Sure. So yeah, it sounds like software will play a role, but it will never be able to totally replace that human factor. I, I, I think it's fair to say that you've had like an undeniable impact on science. But as you look out into the future, what is sort of your long-term aspiration and impact that you want to have? You know, what's the North Star of what you're trying to work towards? I hope there will be more, well, punishments is always a big word, but like, like some way that people who are caught doing fraud, that there will be repercussions for, for them. Because I feel there's, there's too many cases I've reported to journals and institutions where there was just simply no reply. So about 60% of the papers I've reported in the past years have not been acted upon. These are papers with very flawed images. Some of them just simple errors that could be addressed with a correction. Some of them like really outrageous Photoshop 
jobs that are so clear to me in five seconds that there's something uh, that is very fishy going on there. But five years down the road, these papers are still out there. And so I, I'm looking forward to work together more with journals, with institutions, with publishers to very quickly address these, these problems and uh, not have them look the other way. There are so many conflicts of interest where journals do not want to respond because they might lose their citations, they might lose their image as a, as a, you know, a good journal that would never publish any fraud. And institutions also do not seem to want to address these cases because maybe they have a very famous professor who is being accused of something bad, but he or she brings in lots of money. And so let's just pretend this didn't happen. And, and so I'm looking forward to where a time where these cases are swiftly addressed and where there's much more room to give money to honest scientists and not the scientists who cheat. And that's still a long ways to go. Cool. So... Yeah, we, I, we have a bunch of admiration for your work. I'm sure all of our listeners will too. I just want to wrap things up now by asking you, what is your favorite paper? Oh my gosh. One of my favorite papers is that of Lawrence David, in which he sampled himself, sampled his microbiome. So took his own stool samples and followed himself and another scientist for uh, about a year and looked at how his, the composition of his bacteria in his stool changed over time when, when, for example, he went camping or he went like he was sick or he went to another country. And you can see all these, you can see the stability of the human microbiome and you can see also the, the periods where the microbiome just changes because he got sick or, you know, the little things we go through over time. And I felt that paper... Uh, was so important to show the enormous stability of our microbiome, and which is amazing because we eat different things every day, and so we feed our microbes different different uh, foods every day. But it's pretty resilient to the changes that we 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 bring along to it. But uh, when we have a big change, when we got really sick or we go to a different country, this is where the microbiome of a human changes. And I thought it was so elegantly done. That was one of my favorite papers. That's, I would love to read that. Could you send us a link and you can put it in the show notes? Of course, yes. It's it's an older paper. I haven't really kept up to date with microbiome papers, but so it's probably, oh my gosh, around eight years old or so. But yeah, it's, uh, it's, I love that paper. Just has really cool graphs. Oh, nice. Yeah. And it sounds like such an interesting story that he's telling, you know, it's not just one piece of research, but it's this guy's, you know, life that is being explored through science. I think that's very poetic. Yes. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Elizabeth. This has been such a cool episode. One of my favorites so far. And wow. uh, I've learned a ton. Well, yeah. thank you for us. Thank you, Vazant. It was my, my pleasure being here. Thank you. Thank you so much, Elizabeth. Really appreciate it.